Hi, I'm Morgan Block, and you're listening to Climate Curiosities, the podcast where I connect you with real climate science and policy experts to address some of the most common curiosities about climate change. Today's curiosity, what is geoengineering and can it save us from climate change? Thankfully, we have Dr. Kate Rickey virtually here with us today. Kate is a climate scientist and an assistant professor at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. She studies risks associated with climate change and how to mitigate them. Kate is really special because she works to understand how natural and human systems interact. And she has been studying geoengineering for a very long time. Kate, thank you so much for coming on to share your knowledge with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start out the show with a fun introduction. What we're going to do is share two curiosities or fun facts about ourselves for the listeners. I'll start off and give you a chance to think about yours. So one of my fun curiosities, I think, is that I actually met you, Kate, in July of 2019 right when I moved from Texas to here in San Diego, California for grad school at Scripps. I remember sitting down with her in her office and she asked me if I had ever heard of or knew much about geoengineering. And I told her I had briefly heard of it before, but I didn't know too much about it. But I was really interested in learning more about it. And so I've been working with Kate and some of the other Scripps faculty and students and researchers on geoengineering since then. And it's been really an amazing experience. So thank you, Kate, again. And my second curiosity is completely unrelated to geoengineering or climate science, but I am a cat mom. My cat's name is Tuxi. She's super cute, really social. My boyfriend and I adopted her from the San Diego Humane Society in July of 2019 also, <laughs> basically as soon as we moved here. So obviously a lot of good things happened last July. Kate, those are great. Um, so, okay, two fun facts or curiosities about me. One strange fact about me is that I, I tend to read books in a single sitting. So I love to read fiction, but I'm not actually usually allowed to read substantial books because I end up staying up all night and I forget to eat. And so it's not very conducive to functioning as an adult with a job and a family. So I'm a lover of fiction, but except for very short and easy books, I only get to read them on vacation. So that's a that's a fun fact about me. Um, another fact, I, I'm a gardener. And lately I've been growing a sort of a quarantine garden with my five-year-old daughter. So we've got some lettuce and some beans and carrots and tomatoes and herbs and things growing. So that's a fun thing I like to do as well. Yeah, that's fun facts. Yeah, that's super fun. <laughs> I love that. My boyfriend and I just ordered a compost bin set or whatever. Oh, nice. Uh, so we're going to have a worm composting bin on our patio and I'm really excited. So we might start like an herb garden as well. So that's exciting. I recommend it. I recommend it. Well, so Kate, getting into our topic for today on geoengineering, can you first explain to everyone what is geoengineering and why scientists are talking about it? 
Sure. So geoengineering is sort of a catch-all term that's used to refer to a whole set of different potential technologies. Uh, But the main thing that makes geoengineering geoengineering is that it's supposed to be something that's deliberate, that's a large-scale manipulation of the climate system, and that is intended to counteract the effects of anthropogenic climate change. So those are the three main ingredients you need for something to be considered geoengineering. But in terms of terminology, a lot of researchers that work on quote-unquote geoengineering don't use that word generally a lot of the time because there's sort of two main types of geoengineering that people distinguish between. One is carbon dioxide removal or CDR, which is stuff that reduces CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. And then there's still radiation management or SRM, which aims to sort of block a larger fraction of incoming sunlight um, before it's absorbed by the earth. And they work in very different ways. So usually you find people talking about solar geoengineering or carbon geoengineering. And the reason that people are talking about it is just because of climate change, really. I think we've all known that climate change is a problem for a while. We put carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and the planet is warming and we know it will continue to warm for a while. And the Earth's carbon cycle is good at getting extra carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but it takes a really, really long time. And so I think the concern is that the impacts of climate change are going to be so substantial and that the solutions to it are going to take such a long time to implement the conventional solutions that we might need some more extreme options uh, in the toolkit. And that's, and that's what geoengineering is. It's, it's an extreme option. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, sounds extreme, but how did you first get interested in geoengineering? How did you start studying it? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing too impressive on my part. I I started working on it when my PhD advisor said, oh, you know, I think this would be a good thing for you to work on for your your dissertation research. And I had no idea what geoengineering was. And so I asked him, "What what is that? He sort of told me. And I said, oh, that seems like a really terrible idea. And I was like, I'm not sure I want to work on that. And he said, oh, trust me, it'll be be a good project. And so I sort of just trusted in my PhD advisor and his wisdom to find a good topic. And it turned out it was definitely a really interesting thing to work on for someone like me who's sort of most interested in physical climate science and uh, international climate policy making this geoengineering there's really a convergence of uncertainty about the physical effects and then the implications of that for for international relations so for me it was a really uh, sort of perfect topic it turned out even though it was a little crazy sounding in the beginning yeah so you mentioned that there's two different kinds of geoengineering, solar-based and carbon capture-based. Can you talk a little bit more about those two different kinds and maybe some of the scientific proposals that have been in each of those sections? Sure. So CDR, carbon geoengineering, carbon dioxide removal, there are different terms for it. But like I said, the Earth's carbon cycle works slowly to get 
excess CO2 out of the atmosphere. So uh, the idea with carbon geoengineering is, oh, could we speed up that process and use some novel technologies to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere more quickly? And so this includes a really wide range of potential things. One of the earliest interventions that people talked about was ocean iron fertilization. So this was the idea of putting iron into the surface ocean to stimulate phytoplankton bloom, which then the hope was that that sort of material would precipitate out of the surface ocean and and be stored as carbon in the deep ocean, taking away some of that atmospheric CO2. And people actually did some pretty substantial tests of that technology, and it doesn't seem to work. But there are other ways we, we might draw CO2 out of the atmosphere. Something that a lot of people are working on now is just called direct air capture, different ways of just building industrial machines and things that take CO2 directly out of the atmosphere and store it either as a, a gas or injecting it underground or putting turning it into a solid through some sort of industrial chemical process and storing it that way. Uh, really anything that takes CO2 out of the air and puts it somewhere else is, is CDR. And then for solar geoengineering, SRM, there've also been a wide range of proposals. People talk about putting mirrors up in space to reflect sunlight before it gets even to the atmosphere of the earth. Uh, people talk about putting reflective things on the surface of the earth, which means cuz cuz the way the energy budget of the of the earth works is that about 70% of the sunlight that hits the earth gets absorbed by the earth and then re-emitted as, as terrestrial radiation, which then interacts with the atmosphere, right? And then about 30% of the sunlight that hits the earth gets reflected back to space. And then because it just goes straight out into space, it doesn't interact with the atmosphere and warm it up in the same way. So the idea with solar geoengineering is reflecting more sunlight. And so you could do that by putting reflective things on the surface of the earth as well. But there's sort of two main technologies that people have proposed for doing solar geoengineering and invested the most work in in the past decade. And one of those is stratospheric aerosol injection. That's the type that I've worked on the most. And the idea with that is to mimic what happens when there's a big volcanic eruption, basically. Uh, when there's a really big volcanic eruption, like Mount Pinatubo in the 90s was a, an example of this, it blasts a lot of materials, not just into the troposphere where we are, but into the stratosphere, which is the layer of the atmosphere above us. So if you blast a bunch of sulfur dioxide gas up into the stratosphere, eventually you get these sulfate aerosol particles, which sit in the stratosphere for a long time because the stratosphere is convectively stable, which means that uh, the air is kind of stratified there. And as a result, things tend to sit in the stratosphere for a long time compared to in the troposphere where we've got weather. And when you put a particle in the troposphere, it tends to precipitate out within a few days. While these particles up in the stratosphere, they stay for more like a year to two years and they reflect sunlight. And so if we could put a bunch of particles up there, they could reflect back sunlight before it can be absorbed by the earth and cooled on the planet that way. The other main solar geoengineering approach that people have invested time and money in researching is called marine cloud brightening. And this idea comes from the fact that there are certain areas over the ocean where the atmosphere is amenable to making clouds, but there's not enough of these small particles called cloud condensation nuclei for cloud droplets to form around. And so the idea with 
marine cloud brightening or MCB people call it, is to put more of these cloud condensation nuclei in the low marine atmosphere and make marine clouds or or brighten them. Because you could even just introduce more particles into existing clouds and that brightens them because actually more smaller cloud droplets makes a brighter cloud than a cloud with fewer larger droplets. And so that's sort of the other, the second main type of solar geoengineering that people have spent a lot of time looking into. Wow. So is geoengineering happening right now? Are scientists like actually doing these proposals? So no one's actually doing geoengineering at scale right now, not solar geoengineering at least. A lot of carbon geoengineering is kind of, there's a lot of arguments about what things are even called geoengineering versus, you know, natural climate solutions or carbon sequestration. Within the carbon space, it's a lot more fluid. There's there's a lot more sort of private endeavors to try and find ways to capture and store carbon. Under the idea that there's eventually going to be a carbon price and that might be a a way to make money, right? So it's a little bit more ambiguous in the carbon space. But even there, there's not a cheap way that people are scaling those technologies up yet. In the solar geoengineering space, which is sort of the higher risk type of geoengineering, no one's implementing it yet. And there's not really any plans to implemented at scale in the near future. Although we are sort of in a unique moment right now because there was this first test of marine cloud brightening that just happened this spring in Australia, as you might be aware of, because it was sort of related to this this workshop that we were going to be running at Scripps this spring before COVID happened. But actually, in Australia, they're really worried right now, rightfully so, that because the ocean's warming up so fast, the the Great Barrier Reef, the whole thing is just going to die. And there's a lot of evidence that this is already happening. There's just these large-scale bleaching events, right, that are happening on the Great Barrier Reef, which is just one of the most amazing places on Earth. And so Australia has actually invested a bunch of money into trying to understand what interventions they could make to save the Great Barrier Reef. And one of the things that they've invested in looking into is marine cloud brightening. And so actually just this spring, they did a first field test to see if they could spray these types of cloud condensation nuclei into the atmosphere and if they would stay there and how far they would go. They didn't actually in their experiment test how much they brighten clouds or if they even brighten clouds at all. But it is sort of the first real experiment of solar geoengineering that's been done. And it just happened. I mean, time's a little strange right now, but it was it was very recently. For me, at least, it was sort of really opened my eyes as someone who's been working on this for a while to the fact that things could change very quickly. So even though geoengineering yeah. is not happening right now, and I would never have imagined that this is the way or the context in which it could start. And that's pretty exciting. But also kind of scary since you did mention there are risks with these technologies and these implementing these solutions. Can you go into just briefly what are some of the risks associated with these? And maybe to counter that, what are also the reasons that we're willing to take those risks? What are the benefits 
Sure, sure. So, I mean, the the potential benefits, just to get the easy one out of the way first, are, it's just really about reduced harm from global warming, right? So the estimated damages from climate change are expected to be massive. I and mean, we've really been dragging our feet, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So there's this real advantage of solar geoengineering that you can cool the planet really quickly on a time scale of years rather than decades or centuries to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. So once we're experiencing any sort of really catastrophic damages due to global warming, it'll be too late to reduce suffering with emissions reductions. But we could reduce the changes that have happened to the climate really quickly with solar geoengineering. So that's the benefit. And it's a huge benefit, right? It's a huge potential benefit. But the risks associated with geoengineering, a lot of them just have to do with the fact that we don't know that much about it yet. We've been studying climate change and emissions reductions technology for decades really seriously. And geoengineering, there just hasn't been that much research on it. But I mean, first of all, there's some things about global global change that solar geoengineering just can't address, like the direct effects of carbon dioxide, like ocean acidification. You just can't address ocean acidification with solar geoengineering because it doesn't take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And ocean acidification is potentially going to be hugely damaging to ocean ecosystems. There are some physical side effects that people are worried about, like um, with the stratospheric geoengineering that I was talking about, where you put particles into the stratosphere. People worry that doing that could reverse the recovery of the ozone layer in the stratosphere. So basically putting a particle up into the stratosphere, it provides a reactive surface for the destruction of ozone in the presence of chlorofluorocarbons and other ozone-destroying chemicals that got up into the stratosphere when we were using them for air conditioning and things like that. And so doing geoengineering that way could potentially exacerbate, it could slow down the recovery of the ozone hole, it could even make it worse. It depends on the timing and how much geoengineering we're doing and how we do it. So that's a potentially really serious side effect. But I think the thing that people are most worried about is the side effects that we haven't thought about yet, or we haven't figured out yet, because we just know so little. And so a lot of the risks have to do with social systems, how people are going to react to geoengineering, how they're going to make decisions about who decides how much we do of it, and when, what recourse people have if it goes wrong, whether it will mean we stop doing as much to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So some of these risks that have to do with social systems and feedbacks within society are probably some of the biggest ones. I mean, it sounds like there could be some struggles and challenges with legal and international cooperation. We already have so many challenges cooperating internationally with climate change mitigation or adaptation. So this is just another level of it. For sure. We really need more information and more research on geoengineering before we can know most of these answers. Yeah, I think so. I'm someone who's been working on geoengineering for a long time. And I don't think I'm the only one who would say this, but I don't really consider myself a proponent of geoengineering or or an opponent of it either, because I don't think we know enough yet. But I am a proponent for doing 
more research for a couple of reasons. One of which is that the idea is out there, right? And someone could do it, especially since the direct economic costs of actually cooling down the planet this way are very small compared to the cost of decarbonizing the energy system, which means that someone could do it, right? Even a small country could do it. So we need to know, we need to know what would happen if we did it in order to be able to formulate legitimate response to geoengineering action if we're not the one doing it and someone else does. But the other reason is, of course, because it could turn out to be an important and helpful component, our portfolio of climate risk mitigation tools that we need in order to respond to climate change. But one of the main things that people want to know about when they learn about geoengineering is what the impacts of it would be. Because everyone wants to know what are the impacts of global warming and you want to compare that to the impacts of geoengineering. And there's been some research on the impacts of geoengineering, but it's just it's just nothing compared to the impacts literature on the effects of warming and greenhouse gases. And so, you know, you look at a figure that goes into the IPCC reports. So these assessment reports that get published every six years or so with all the climate change research literature synthesized. And you look at like a figure on the expected impacts of greenhouse gas driven warming, right? And a figure, a synthetic figure from an IPCC report on climate change impacts, it's maybe reflecting the work of 10,000 scientists or something, right? Just massive amount of human capital and intellectual capital that's gone into trying to be able to say something decisive about what the impact of climate change will be. And then you try and say, well, but what's the impact of doing geoengineering? And maybe you've got 10 studies, maybe you've got five studies, maybe you've got two or three studies about the same thing that there's 8,000 studies about when you're talking about the impact of global warming on agriculture versus the impact of geoengineering on agriculture. We're talking about 8,000 papers versus two papers. And so there's just this huge asymmetry of information that we're dealing with when we try and compare impacts. And you can't make any sort of rational or sound decision about the relative benefits and harms in the presence of such a huge information asymmetry. And so that's why I think that the main thing we need is to do do more research and see what we find out. Yes, thank you so much for explaining that because it definitely can be confusing when people hear about geoengineering. And so I'd like us to just answer our our curiosity, at least as much as we can today. From your response, it doesn't sound like it, but I'll let you respond. So can geoengineering be our answer to climate change, do you think, in the future? Will it save us? <laughs> I mean, that's a complicated question. So Geoengineering is not a substitute for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and it's not a substitute for adapting to climate change either. We're going to have to do both of those things. It's a potential additional supplement to doing those things. So it's not the answer to climate change. But the question of whether it could save us is a lot more complicated because the whole idea that geoengineering is worth 
looking into is predicated upon the concern that emissions reductions and adaptation at this point aren't going to be enough to quote unquote save us. And so in that sense, as an additional way to reduce the risks and harms from climate change, yeah, it could save us. But but we don't know whether it'll save us or make everything worse or under which conditions, which of those will be true yet. We just don't know. Okay, thank you, Kate. And so to finish the podcast, I always like to end with modeling a conversation for our listeners so that they can maybe replicate it if someone asks them a question about our curiosity. Today, just to model a simple answer, if someone was asked, what is geoengineering and can we use it to address climate change? How would you respond? So geoengineering is a word we use to refer to things that would be large-scale, deliberate interventions into the Earth's climate system in order to counteract climate change. And it's possible we could use technologies called geoengineering in order to reduce some additional harms that are associated with global warming, but it's not a substitute for reducing emissions, which is the most important thing to do. That's a perfect answer. Thank you so much. <laughs> geoengineering, <laughs> geoengineering is such a curious topic in itself. And it sounds like very curious scientists are looking into researching it a lot more. I'm really glad that we got to have you on to explain all of this to everyone. So thank you so much for coming on the Climate Curiosities podcast show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you would like more information about the topics covered in this episode, please see the description for references. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember, follow and subscribe to Climate Curiosities. See you next time.